Hello everyone, welcome to In Conversation with Lisa Burke and I'm very happy to welcome you to the second edition of my mini-series on English education, secondary education notably, and the choices therein in Luxembourg. So today I welcome another three guests. Firstly, Dr. Daniel Redinger, who came to Lycée Michel Lucius in 2015 after teaching in Scotland and an international school in Germany. His PhD is in sociolinguistics and language in education policies. At Michel Lucius, Daniel teaches English and contributed to the development of the international section. Together with the school director, Pascal Petri, Daniel developed and led their international primary school and the international section of the secondary school until 2020. And now he has primarily returned to his original passion, which is teaching in a truly international and multilingual school, but continues to work on the school development projects too. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning to you. Second, we have Max Wolf. Now, from 2015, he has been an inspector for the European Secondary Schools and also from 2015 is the deputy head of the international school Edward Steichen, responsible for the European classes across both primary and secondary and the school development. Max was a science teacher in national high schools and both of the European schools here in Luxembourg, where he was also the science coordinator from 2010 to 2015. Welcome, Max. Good morning, Lisa. Happy to be here. And also welcoming from Lycée Edristeichen in Clairvaux, Dr. Rolf Wiesemus. You've uh, given me the hardest name of all this morning, but I'm trying my best. Rolf is the English Language Coordinator and European Projects Coordinator at Lycée Edristeichen. Rolf is a PhD in education and spent much of his time either studying or working and teaching in the UK. Last September, he was awarded runner-up for the J.B. Kramer Young Teacher Award. And whilst a senior research fellow at the University of Nottingham, he was responsible for the coordination, research and development of the Centre for Excellence in Teaching and Learning, Visual Learning Lab, which won the Lord Deering Award in 2010. And that celebrates outstanding achievements of the University of Nottingham staff in enhancing the student learning experience. So welcome to you, Rolf. Good morning and thank you for inviting me. It's wonderful to have you all here on such an important subject to our listeners, secondary education choices in Luxembourg. And we know very well that it's of growing concern to the Luxembourg government because there's been such a great enhancement and development and building of new options throughout the country. First of all, I want to turn to you, Daniel, to talk to us about one of the more established leases here offering that international option to our audience. So Lucy Michel Lutz is a, is a public international school. Uh, we're fully accredited with Cambridge International, which is an international exams board. Um, Lycée Michel Lutis has been in existence for over 50 years, but then in 2011, we had a handful of students, international students, who joined the school. And that's where that international branch of the school started developing. And over the course of the last few years, that's really developed uh, exponentially. And we now have a full international school within Lycée Michel Lutius. So from roughly 20 students in 2011, we're now at over 1,000 students following an international curriculum, alongside still about 800 students who follow the local curriculum. So it's a very diverse um, school environment. Um, I think maybe what defines the school is not just, uh, I suppose, our international outlook and academically rigorous qualifications, but really also our mission to have learners that have a curiosity for learning, those who really become critical thinkers. Well-being is also really at the forefront of what we do because we believe that that's also really what helps them to become those critical thinkers that dare to take a risk um, and the ones who develop a growth mindset. I mean, ultimately, our our goal is for students to see a challenge as an opportunity for learning and, and to take it from there. And I think that's also what's helped us decide on the qualifications that we offer. So I th it was um, a very conscious choice to offer international GCSEs, international A-levels. We also run the primary international checkpoints with Cambridge, the lower secondary checkpoints. And, you know, there's lots of different possible international qualifications available. And what we were looking for was a qualification that has that sort of academic rigour, 
but without rigidity. So to give us an, an element of flexibility to also do justice to that diversity that the students actually bring to the school. And alongside of that, I think we'll probably talk about that later today, but it's all the language qualifications as well, because we are a school with one language of instruction, which is English. Um, however, I think we are very in a truly multilingual learning environment where our students speak a whole host of languages and we teach a lot of languages as well. Um, so not only do we offer language qualifications with, the, with Cambridge, but we work together with a whole host of other organisations, the INL, the Goethe Institute, so on, just to kind of also offer language qualifications in line with a common European framework of reference for languages. So that's kind of what I meant by the idea of kind of having lots of flexibility, really giving our students that opportunity to learn, to, to get high-end qualifications uh, and to do them justice and to build on what they bring to school when they arrive here. That's a, a wonderful introduction to Lise Michel Lucius. And uh, you hit on two of the, the key phrases that I hear again and again when it comes to education, which is critical thinking and the growth mindset. Turning to you, Max, uh, in your role as an inspector for the European schools, you must have seen a lot. This straddles two things, really, in Luxembourg. We have the two European schools, but we also have this growing number of national schools, state schools, if you will, which are offering the European Baccalaureate. And that's also something I want to focus on today. We haven't yet mentioned in great depth that Michel Lucius offers A-levels and IGCSEs and is the only state school to do so in Luxembourg. And the only other school which does A-levels is St. George's. So Max, tell us about the European school system and then the state European school system. Yeah, so I think the, the topic of this podcast is mainly to deal also with the English options in Luxembourg, but we must say that the European school system as such is um, a system where we have an English section, but apart from that we have many language sections. So we have all the uh, official languages of the European Union, which are 23, which could be offered in all those schools. So to understand a bit the philosophy behind the system, we have to look back in history. The first European school was created in Luxembourg back in the 50s. It was uh, created by the European Commission, and it was mainly meant for the pupils of the employees of the Commission or later on the different joint research centers that were created in different uh, member states. So currently we have 13 type, what we call Taiwan, European schools, which are mainly reserved still for the pupils of those employees. But back in 2009, under the initiative of the European Parliament, the system of the European schools was opened to all the member states, which means that all the member states are now uh, in the position to be able to create private schools or uh, public schools, state schools, because they saw that it was a, a school model that would also be valid for all the other pupils. Uh, what's really unique about the system is that we work uh, within language sections. So we take into account the uh, mother tongue or the dominant language of the pupil, and most of the tuition will then be in uh, that language. But on top of that, it's really a system that is a multilingual system that takes into account uh, multiculturalism, and that fosters also on having the development of a second, first or second or a third foreign language. When it comes to Luxembourg, currently we have two big schools in Luxembourg, two Taiwan schools. We have the one in Kirchberg, we have the other one um, in uh, Marmer Bertrange. And at the current stage, we have four accredited schools. We have one in Differdange and Esch, the other one in Mondorf, one in Jünglinster, and uh, one in uh, Clairvaux, Lycée, Edward Steicher. There will be two more schools. Um, as from next year, it will be a new school in Mersch and another school in Luxembourg City. Both types of school offer the same curriculum, which means that we apply the same syllabi, we have the same pedagogical approach, we have the same uh, evaluation assessment is done uh, in the same way, and also the final certificate that we deliver is always the European Baccalaureate. Thank you for that very deep and uh, lucid explanation of the European school system. And it's notable that the Luxembourg government is choosing the European baccalaureate, it seems, for international schools much more than either the IB, which is offered at the Athenee, or A-levels, which is offered in Michel Lucius. So there must be a reason behind that. I'm turning to you now, Rolf. You are the head of the English section at Lycée Edwardsteichen uh, in Clairvaux. Um, so tell us about what that means, how you go about teaching English. You have a, a very deep academic record yourself. 
but also either you or Max could perhaps tell me about how you find English teachers for both the national state schools and also I know it has been a point of concern for many people, the English section within the European schools, type one European schools, as you call them, Max. Okay. Um, well, we are, just to clarify that a bit, at LESC, at least Edward Steichen, we are a school with three different strands, strictly speaking. We've got the two nat- the old traditional national strands, like the General and the Classic section, and we've got the European strand. Within the European school, we've got by now three language sections, a German, a French and an English language section, where each respective language is taught as an L1, meaning as a mother tongue language to those students who are within these sections. All the students, no matter what language section they are in, they also learn mostly English as an L2, meaning as the first foreign language. And um, therefore, English is one of the key languages within our school. Uh, we also offer a range of extracurricular activities around, based around exchanges, which unfortunately, because of the current situation, have, has had to stop, of course. Uh, but also uh, extracurricular activities like the theatre group that we've got, the English theatre group, um, in parallel with the French group and so on. So that's where we are Overall, as a school at Lycée Edward and of course, as opposed to Michel Lucius, we're a brand new school because we only opened in September 2018. Um, to answer your question about recruitment, at the moment we are getting teachers um, through various routes. Uh, the first route within the traditional national system, we follow, of course, the procedures that are set out by the ministry, but also for the European route, we are able to recruit our teachers based on a certain set of conditions that I'm sure Max can say a little bit more about, which are, have also been set out by the Ministry of Education, also to ensure quality ensure assurance that we get the best teachers that we can get for each of our sections, really. Yeah, so uh, when it comes to recruitment, one request from Brussels is also to have native speakers, not only in the English section, but across all these sections. So the challenge is not only to find those native English speakers, but also to have French, German, and all those languages at different schools. So as in, let's say, as a state school, uh, we recruit uh, European-wide or even worldwide. We only can recruit uh, qualified teachers that have a certain uh, number of years of experience. And then on top of their mother tongue, they also bring one of the vehicular languages of uh, this country. Uh, when it then comes to the Taiwan schools or the classical schools, that's still a system that mainly functions with secondments. So every member state has to second a certain number of teachers to all of those schools. And on top of that, they also now have the possibility to have locally recruited teachers. And in that sense, it might be a challenge to uh, fulfill all the posts. But I think there was a good cooperation, a good uh, collaboration between all the member states to assure that all those posts are uh, constantly filled. But what we also can see is that there is a certain rotation in those schools, which uh, is, I would say, also an advantage to get new ideas, to have people with new background, to have also the latest pedagogical development in uh, all those schools. And then we also have to report to Brussels, so all the schools undergo either whole school inspections or audits, and during those audits, uh, the inspectors also have a close look at the qualification and at the level of, of language qualification of the teachers, meaning that all of those must be uh, native speakers. Which has been hard recently in the English section of the European schools. I think it's, it, 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 it's a challenge, um, but um, there were some adjustments made uh, afterwards also when it comes to salary, because there, is, there, there was that discrepancy in between the Taiwan schools and accredited schools, uh, which does not exist anymore. So in that sense, I think there was an improvement. And even now the Taiwan schools have no trouble anymore to find uh, sufficient native speakers, not only for the English section, but also for all the other sections. I think what um, these recruitment guidelines really highlight is the diversity that we've not just amongst the student population in our schools, but also the increasingly diverse teacher population. Personally, when I look at this as the English department coordinator, I think it's a great thing because what we get now is we get teachers who would be teaching in one of the traditional national strands, like in the Classico General section, working together with teachers who are working in the European section. 
Those teachers might then have worked in a European school before, they might have worked in an international school before, they might have worked in a different national system before. And all of this then really makes for a wide range of experiences that, that are brought into our classrooms and that really help us to develop pedagogies that are appropriate for the students that we are learning with. And I think that is a really good thing. At the same time, through having all these conversations that we have to have about teaching and learning, not just English, but teaching and learning in general, uh, that is also an informal way and in some way formal way to ensure quality assurance within our classrooms and of course also quality insurance in terms of assurance in terms of assessment and how we develop our students. So I think those guidelines and rules that we've got for recruitment are actually a very, very positive thing. You've got a hugely diverse teaching, uh, a plethora of teachers, uh, a great bulk of teachers wanting to work in Luxembourg because the salaries are quite large here <laughs> compared to teaching in other countries. But turning back to you now, Daniel and uh, Michel Lucius, you have, I'm quite sure, a very diverse population of students. How do you integrate them when it comes to teaching English? Teaching English specifically? Um, well, in, in the sense that you're teaching all of the subjects through okay. English. Yeah, I think it's absolutely right what you say. The, the, the population of the students is incredibly diverse in so many ways. I think linguistically, culturally, socially, I think that's also another aspect as well. We're a state school, we're not a non-fee-paying non, we are non -paying school as such. Um, I think it's a lot to do with the ethos of the school. That's where it all starts. And that's also where I think I could link in with what you've just discussed in terms of recruitment. I think in the first instance, it's really important that for us, what we believe in is, as I mentioned in the introduction of growth mindset, um, seeing a challenge for learning as an opportunity for learning. Um, so how do we do it? I think primarily as a system, we have, of course, a lot of students that speak English quite fluently when they arrive. Um, but we also have those students who come and who don't speak English very well. Um, that could just be to do with the fact that um, you know one of their first languages hasn't been English, they've maybe moved around a lot, but they come into a system where we work based on immersion um, and alongside immersion we also have some sometimes temporary support measures to help them with some targeted instruction. But because it's one language, they, they are kind of living and breathing that language. And it is not just a language that they're speaking in the classroom, but it is the only common language often that they have in their friendship groups. It's very typical to have a classroom with 20 students and there's 20, at least 20 languages in there. Because many of them have more than one first language. It's not even very clear what their first language is. So... I think another thing there for us is, is how we view language learning at the school. Um, we have one language of instruction, I mentioned it earlier, but we teach a lot of languages. So the idea is to think about what motivates the socio-psychological factor, what motivates somebody to learn a language. That's the first step. And then there's that kind of linguistic side to it where languages do not kind of coexist in the speaker's mind. They always interact. So how we teach um, languages and English alongside other languages as well is to build on, and this is work in progress, I have to say, but to build on the languages that the students bring. They have a really good understanding of lots of languages when they come. So we need to know what are those languages and then we need to build on that. We need to build on those linguistic structures that are there and help them to actually acquire the languages and often they acquire it quite quickly. And maybe on a final point to mention is that even those students who speak English as a first language, when it comes to academic language, a language of learning, that's a foreign language for every student. So we already have to teach that very explicitly through a concept that we, I think in, in schools, is a very common thing that we talk about. We call it scaffolding. And I think it's a nice image for people that are maybe not working in education to think of a building where you've got scaffolding alongside of it. It's something that helps you. And the scaffolding are lots of things that are put in place in a classroom where students can tap into to have that little bit of help to get to the next stage. But the scaffolding is not something that is meant to stay there forever and evermore. So as, as we kind of develop the language, we gradually remove that. And in a very ideal scenario, our students have kind of learned to assess their own learning so they can decide at which point they don't need that support mechanism anymore. And that is when that kind of motivation really kicks in because they're taking ownership of their own language learning. So it's a lot of different types of things, but we really think that the idea of having people who, students who learn the language in use, I think because they're using it, they're, they're living the language, that's what actually leads often to a very, very exponential growth in their language learning.
It's a really beautiful analogy, that one of scaffolding. And I can hear glimmers of your PhD coming back in here. You must be having a field day living your PhD in real life, absolutely living the research every day. I can see your enthusiasm for it as well. It's making me smile here just listening to you. I want to just dig in a little bit to some of the nuts and bolts, which I think our listeners might be interested in. So class sizes, what's the average or maximum number per class? Um, it depends a little bit on the age group. Um, I mean, obviously, because we have a primary school as well. I think when, when children are really young, when they start with this in year one, these classes are a bit smaller. So we may be looking about 15 and so on. But they grow as we kind of um, get older as well. I think on average, it's quite common to have class sizes of about 24. Um, I think we might sometimes have higher ones. I think they can go higher. They might be a little bit lower. Um, I think that's just, and I think as I mentioned earlier, it's a lot, there's a lot of options in the system. So that also kind of really depends sometimes on what subjects students have chosen, how big the class might get. Since you're an established school, another question we have coming into us sometimes is, do you accept students mid-year? We do, yeah. Um, I mean, I think I've even just uh, yesterday I looked at the numbers. So even this year, which we all know is a bit of an odd year for, for uh, I suppose, also even international travel and so on. But since September, we have enrolled uh, 54 additional students, so mid-year already this year. And that's not really, that's not uncommon at all. I, I think it's just a reality of what happens. Families move. And, um, you know, children need a school. And I think it's, I think we're quite used to doing this. Now, of course, there are years when it's easier to kind of arrive mid-year. There are years when it's more challenging. But it's a like with all things enrollment, it's a kind of case-by-case case, uh, system. And we look and we try and find a solution for the family and for that young person who essentially wants to learn. And so they need that place. I'm sure that will ease the minds of a number of listeners. And then I just want to dig a little bit more into A-levels, which we did talk about in depth in, in the first podcast in this education mini-series. I think most people will now be aware that A-levels are quite a funneled choice, or that's how it's viewed. However, you have that, uh, let's say, that first platform of scaffolding, which is the GCSEs. So how many GCSEs do you allow mm -hmm. students to take? Um, again, it varies a little bit. I mean, I, all students will do English, maths, uh, all three sciences, and they do what is often known as the triple sciences. So, so they, separate sciences. Separate sciences. Which is different from St. George's, which does combined science. Okay. So just to explain to the listeners, separate science is worth three GCSEs and combined science is worth two. Exactly. Um, and then, of course, there's a language element to it. So there's a choice here of um, either French or German or Spanish. They can do one language, they can do two languages. And of course, if they do two languages, then that has an impact on how many option subjects to do. So I think in terms of option subjects, we've got what you'd expect, your kind of humanities, geography, history, economics, uh, computer science. Uh, we've got the arts like music and arts, English literature. Um, we've also got global perspectives, which is a subject that we teach actually from year one in the primary all the way up to the A-levels. And it's an integral component of the ACE diploma as well, that is one of the final two years. So generally speaking, the number of GCSEs, um, it can vary. Uh, it would be eight or nine. Um, I know that some schools do more than that. I think we've made quite a conscious decision for depth over breadth. And the reasons for that are that we know that between GCSEs and A-levels, there's quite a big jump in the level of difficulty. Um, so what we need to do is we need to use those GCSEs years to get the depth in, to consolidate those skills. So when they go in to do the A-levels, they're well prepared. Um, doing just more qualifications, it's one possible approach, but I think we see that a lot of these GCSEs have a lot of transferable skills into them. So essentially, if we really make sure that the depth is there in the GCSE years, then they're well prepared for the A-levels. I am going to come back to you, Max and Rolf. I'm just going to <laughs> dig a bit further here now, jumping to the A-levels, because you mentioned global perspectives, which again is something that is different to St. George's, because as far as I'm aware, they don't offer that. So tell us about how that extends into the final A-levels. And again, how many A-levels, which is normally three mm -hmm. on average for students to do, how many do you offer? So I think it's um, like the same similar approach to, I suppose, most schools who offer international A-levels. In the second last year, students typically do four. Um, and then in the final year, they specialise in three. That can also be starting with five, specialising in four for students that are really pushing themselves to go very, very far. Um, and with that fourth and potentially fifth subject, they often come out with what is called an AS. 
Exactly, right, exactly. And I think so at the end of the second last year of, of schooling, they already sit their AS exams and then they drop one of those, but they have that qualification. So they effectively finish with what we kind of sort of commonly use as say as um, three and a half A-levels or four and a half A-levels, which is very common across the world. We have as well, though, over the years now, because we're a Cambridge assessment centre, Cambridge offer a possibility to recognise I suppose, versatility in the students. So as you mentioned earlier, A-levels give that flexibility of having quite a focused choice at the end. So if we can typically take an example like a student who wants to do medicine, so they might have chemistry, maths, physics, biology, as I said. That's very, very focused. But we also have those students who are much more versatile. And that, and to be able to have that also kind of, I suppose, validated, recognised in a way, the Cambridge introduced the uh, Advanced International Certificate in Education, what's called the ACE Diploma. What that means is that they still do their A-levels, but it's the combination that matters. So there must be at least one maths or science, at least one language, at least one of the arts and humanities or, and so on, and then a core element, which is the global perspectives and research. Now, I think for your listeners who listened to your first podcast, there's probably some similarities here that stick out with the IB when we are saying we're getting in versatility, we're getting in a breadth, and that's what the ACE Diploma does. Global Perspectives and research is a subject that is very interdisciplinary. It's something that's very skills focused. Uh, you, I think the idea that um, you are developing certain types of skills and you're, you're using your knowledge from your different subject areas to look into that and to look at areas that are possibly going beyond what traditional school curricula look at. So for instance, like, you know, uh, a project on ethics and sustainability, uh, where you bring in lots of different types of angles here. And then that can culminate then at the A-level with the Global Perspectives and Research in, a, in an extended research paper, which has lots of similarities with the extended essay. So that's essentially how it works. The extended essay of the IB. So that sounds like it's moving a lot closer towards the IB. Now turning to the EB, the European Baccalaureate. This is the first time we'll delve into this for our listeners. So between you both, tell us what the positives are of the EB. How many subjects do you do at the end? And of course, the languages involved in these subjects. Yeah, uh, I think the, the EB system is, might be a system that's not uh, well uh, yet known at the moment. It's a growing system. We have more and more schools and, and, and parents might be interested in what's specific about the European Baccalaureate. You have to know that the secondary will deliver seven years of education. And when we are speaking about the European Baccalaureate, we are speaking about the last two years of uh, secondary. Um, but it, all of the years leading up to that will coerce to make that possible in that you have to do some of your final exams in a second or third language, I yeah. believe. And I know from the European schools, they already start teaching some of the subjects, some of the humanities, for instance, in the second language. Yeah, the main idea is to have a uh, teaching that's done in the main language of the pupils, mother tongue or either dominant language. And then as they grow in a school, we are adding a first foreign language, second one, they can have up to five different languages. Uh, that's their choice. So uh, that's not an obligation. Uh, we must say that overall, it's a comprehensive uh, multilingual curriculum. At the end, they uh, choose the subjects. I would say that's a big advantage. We have no like divisions or section we know from the Luxembourg national system, but we could have specific packages for every individual uh, pupil. So uh, what we always cover are languages. So they will be assessed in their mother tongue. Um, they could have all the subjects and or mainly all the subjects and even the languages, even at an advanced level, then they will be assessed in their first foreign language in the written exam and also in an oral exam. We have all the humanities, we have the scientific subjects which might then be taught in more than lang uh, one language. So when it comes to the compulsory subjects, we have both languages, language one, language two. We have mathematics that could be chosen at different levels. We have met three periods, five periods, up to eight periods. Then we have uh, what's specific for Luxembourg. We have Vie Société. Um, ethics. Ethics. ethics yeah. And then we have physical education. And then they have to choose in between uh, different scientific subjects. They could have the whole package in order to have a very specific orientation already towards uh, further studies or tertiary studies like biology, chemistry, physics. We have the humanities, geography, history, uh, also philosophy. And then there is a whole range of options. And with those options, they will complete their timetable. Some of those options will also be assessed. Uh, we have like 15 or 20 of those options going every possible direction. And on top of that, we have all the complementary subjects. 
So complementary subjects for the moment, we have like 16, uh, 60 different subjects. There could be more. So if a school would like to offer something more in that field, that's also uh, a possibility. In the end, they, are, uh, they have five written examinations and uh, three oral examinations. And I would say the biggest advantage of the system is having a transversal approach, having also the possibility to have a very uh, a specific direction already at the end of secondary education. But we often see also that pupils do not have taken any decision when it comes to further studies, so they can also uh, leave it quite open at that moment. So having the main subject still covered and only taking the decision afterwards. And what we can see nowadays also is that what society requests as such is to have uh, qualification in many different fields. And so that's also a system that already at secondary um, gives a final certificate covering many different topics at, uh, at secondary education. I've just heard this like wave of subjects go over me, like tens of subjects and choices. Of course, that would uh, depend on the capabilities and the capacity of a school to be able to offer those subjects. But um, just to be clear, how many subjects do they have to do in the end, in the final year? In the end, we have uh, five subjects that are tested in a written way. We have three subjects that are mainly the same than the written ones that are, to that are tested in an oral way. Uh, we cannot say it's the number of subjects, it's more number of hours to fulfill. And that number of periods is in between 33 periods and 35 periods. But all, it's always two languages. It's always physical education, math and uh, ethics. And then on top of that, we have the human sciences and the scientific subjects. And just to ask then the question with physical education, does whatever mark they get in physical education add on to their academic score? We have uh, two different marks in the EB. We have the preliminary mark, which is a rather formative assessment over the whole cycle. And then we have the summative assessment. And the end, we have the pre-baccalaureate, those examinations that uh, schools offer at uh, the month of January, so in between. And then we have the final examination, and that will be the second mark. And altogether, we sum it up. But there is no final examination in uh, physical education. <laughs> but overall, in the final result, you will also find one element coming out from uh, that specific uh, subject. I'm smiling because it doesn't sound like an easy thing to organise or to think about even as a student, not alone a teacher. Um, so again, Rolf, I'm going to turn to you. In those final couple of years, what is the English teaching like? And what subjects at your school, for example, would be taught in English, offered in English? It depends obviously on the section that you are in, because we're organised by language sections. The English teaching in L1 would very much be looking at literature, would be looking at arguing, would be exposed to different kinds of texts, dealing with texts, lots of writing developments and so on. So that would be English L1. And students are generally mother speaker level by the time they finish in this section. If you then look at English as a foreign language, English as L2, uh, students by the end of their European Baccalaureate course, they should reach level C2 to C1 if they're really good. But we gradually build our students towards that. So, for example, with the students, remember we are a new school, with the students that we've currently got, they start at level A1 when they come to us and we build them up by uh, the third year at our school up to level B1. So that's really where we develop our students. Within the uh, English L2 section, they will be dealing with, well, first of all, some traditional English language learning, of course, but enriched through really diverse ways of teaching, through a wide range of pedagogical approaches that we're developing. For example, at the moment, we're looking at bringing in some problem-based learning within our English L2 group in order to motivate our students further. Um, there will be, as part of the EB exam for English L2 text-based uh, analysis, there will obviously be uh, some literature as well, but it depends again at what level students choose to, to do this language. I think what's really important as well is to remember that what the EB offers might suit lo a lot of learners equally, some people, like Daniel was pointing out, might prefer to go down the A-level route and equally people might wish to go down the IB. To me, the most important bit is really is that we as a school pick up our learners where they are at the very beginning. So, for example, if I look at the uh, students that we get in our English L1 or English L2 sections, 
they're not, as Daniel already said, English L1 speakers aren't necessarily very academic in their English. So that's something that we develop with them. So we pick up those students where they are when they arrive at ours, and then we develop them as a school. Um, our school policy is, we always claim we're a school for the 21st century. But well, we really want to develop our learners so they are ready when they finish, when we've got the first batch of students coming out of our school in a few years' time for facing the world that is out there. And there, the diversity, I think, is really needed that they can get. Because nobody here knows what that will look like. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. it's very, very hard for education to keep up with that. I do I do understand and I see that at home in my house as well. I wanted to ask you both, when it comes to this wonderful geographical spread of the new set of European schools, national European schools. So we already have the established Diffredange, Junglinster. Your school is the latest in in that batch, but you are also talking about the one in Mondorf, which I don't know how old that one is actually. So the first school was created back in 2016 in uh, Diffredange. And then two years later, we had three other schools, Mondorf, Junglinster and Edward Steichen. And now as from the next school year on two years time, we'll have two new schools. Mersch and also one in the city. So when it comes to taking on students, I can imagine that some parents are a little bit worried because they're There isn't that history to look at. You know, Michel Lucius or other schools, perhaps like the Ateneo, they have an established history in international teaching. So how can you put to rest any concerns, any trepidation parents might have? Because, of course, geographically, it might suit them if it's sitting on their doorstep to choose this school. And, of course, we all know about the the cost of housing in Luxembourg. So how can you just ease the worries of a parent when you don't have those students who have gone through the whole system? You're absolutely right. So previously, parents coming to Luxembourg with their children were obliged to enroll their children in any school and Luxembourg City around. Now we have those accredited schools all over the country. So that gives also a bit of uh, a possi- uh, possibilities or flexibility for parents not to settle down in Luxembourg uh, City. You are mentioning the prices for housing. And I think that's also an argument that a parent should uh, consider. There is a history. There is a system that dates back to the, to the 50s. It's a system that now exists for like uh, 70 years. Um, it's a system where all the member states have participated in, in building it up. So uh, I, I would say also not advantage of the system is to have best practice from all the member states. It's a system that has grown historically. It's a system that initially um, was created in Luxembourg, but then was rapidly spread to seven member states, and now we have uh, schools in many more member states. I think uh, for the moment it's a system that is less known. We only have like 30 schools overall, but it's a fast-growing system. Across Europe. Across Europe. So and there are several member states like Luxembourg that have now discovered the system that have seen that uh, it is a system that had a lot of success, that also has a history in the sense that uh, we did good experience when uh, pupils left the system going to apply uh, to university, might it be in, in Europe or worldwide, so that history exists. I think there needs to be an effort done in, in communication, not when it comes to Luxembourg, but overall Brussels explaining how the system uh, functions. But I think that's, um, that's a challenge now for, for, for the upcoming year. It's a system that will still grow. Um, And I think uh, our work is to explain uh, to parents what the advantages of the system might be. It's a system that's different to other systems that exist, which are big international systems that are maybe more known than than this system. But it's also a system that offers all those language sections. And I think that's also different. It's not only meant for English-speaking people or English-speaking children. It's a system that's meant for, let's say, the children from Europe or coming to Europe and that could go on with an education done in their mother tongue. And I think that's the, what's unique about the system and what should also be explained uh, to parents. But the history is there. It's maybe not well known. The history is there for the European schools from the start and, and now the accredited schools being the, the state uh, national schools. Uh, you mentioned that there's 30 across Europe and another concern parents have is the next stepping stone from that end point, that launch pad of either IB or EB or A-levels to university. And this is probably 
the hinge point of concern for students at that time in their lives. Can you also just put to rest any worries students might have about applying to university that the university admissions departments understand what an EB is? EB has still a strong link with all the member states. So there is a direct link with the final certificate we deliver as the European school system and all the other national systems within Europe. There are conventions that are being signed in between the uh, head office in Brussels and all the member states. So there is an equivalence. Um, and according to that equivalence, it guarantees direct access to all the universities across Europe. Sometimes it has to be explained that is done, uh, but in that sense, there is a recognition. Um, universities know the system, and if they do not know the system, all those conventions uh, enable us to say that's absolutely equivalent to any national certificate that's delivered within the different member states. So in, in that sense, there is the guarantee that the final certi certificates are officially uh, recognized. I just wanted to come back to your previous question about um, the new schools and how do we ensure that we know what we're doing. Of course, we're new schools, but what you... I, I, I didn't mean to say you didn't know what you were doing. No, 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 no. But, <laughs> I but, I think it's, but, but I think it's an important concern, of course. <laughs> we are new schools and I think with that comes a certain amount of risk-taking and a certain amount of uh, sometimes getting things slightly wrong or things not working as well as we want them to work. However, on the other hand, when we talked about staffing earlier, of course, we get very experienced staff because we have to and we want to, of course. Um, there's, of course, the history of the curriculum that Max has just spoken about. And that's really important as well. But I think also we've got the enthusiasm that is happening in the new school that where you can really see people working together, where you can really see people wanting to develop things. And I think that's uh, something where you can feel a certain amount of energy that is still there with the teachers and hopefully that will always be there. I think hearing Daniel talk about Michel Lucius, that is still there clearly. But I think that's something that I think is one of our big advantages really, where we really want to develop things and to want to do things for our students. So I think that's one important point. The other point in relation to what Max was just saying in terms of university uh, requirements, um, of course what we're also starting to look at is that some universities might have specific language requirements, so we look at how do we fulfill those. So to give you a very concrete example, I've got at the moment a student who is applying uh, at a Dutch university, and because she's going to be studying in English, she will need to have a certain level of English. So we're now going to look at, well, how can we offer that type of qualification that is required for being accepted at this particular university? And that, that of course, is something where we will be developing what we are offering in the next few years according to what our students need. Well, I know that parents might be concerned that their child is entering the guinea pig years. On the other hand, as you've just described, you can really focus in on what each child needs and develop and mould the system around them and learn as a team how to move the school forward. So there are pros and cons and, and you're saying dive in and take the chance, especially if the school is sitting on your doorstep. Daniel, I want to turn back to you and uh, just ask a little bit more about A-levels. For people listening, A-levels are mostly associated with Britain and British universities. They're very well understood there. But that's not without its own issues because there are many different examination boards in the UK. You've chosen an excellent one. It's an international one, but of a very high level as well. We've also had some listeners writing in to say that there has been a sort of crisis in A-levels over the last year or two. Really due to COVID and the fact that there's been marking by teachers or external examiners. So can you just tell us a little bit about that crisis in the marking system of A-levels, which is probably not just for A-levels, but it's been a very difficult year mm -hmm. across the world for any examination system to mark when so many exams were actually cancelled. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it has been, uh, Yeah, it's the word that we hear all the time, an unprecedented situation. Um, I think maybe I'll go back to why do we work with Cambridge? Because as you said, there's lots of different types of um, examples available. And I think our kind of accreditation with Cambridge and why we've opted to work with them is that we find that their, their qualifications and the curricula, they really are developed um, 
you know, coming out of research. I think it is very much a pedagogical um, approach to developing curriculum. Um, and what we see there as well is that um, when it comes to, you know, grades and assessment and all of that, it's first of all, and I think they start further back. So the first thing is to kind of really define what is assessment and the different types of assessment. The most important one, I would say, is not the one that is the grade, it's the, what we call assessment for learning. So that's the one when we actually work with the students and Cambridge as well, provide a lot of training for teachers and so on to, to understand how do we assess students so that they can progress in their learning. That's the first step. Um, and then there's, of course, the end The end of the road is still that, that grade that they're going to get. What happened last year and what is still going on this year, I think, is that, um, of course, last year, I think the, the exams didn't go ahead at the moment uh, with Cambridge. Cambridge is um, still, uh, we're still on track to, to hold the exams at the moment. Um, but a lot of things have been put in place um, to make sure that students can be well prepared. I wouldn't say necessarily a crisis. I think there's a fair amount of flexibility in it as well so that you can see you know, we have some students that are going to take their exams and then they might be able, um, like the ones, for instance, like last year got grades based on teacher assessment. That was, for instance, their AS grade. Now they're going into their final A-level year. They're still going to get the opportunity to take that exam now. They will always have that AS qualification standing there, but it's not going to influence what's happening now in the A-level year. So I think exam boards, together with schools, and they do consult schools, they're trying their best, to be honest. And I think there's no easy solution to any of that. I think what an exam board like Cambridge gives us is we have a lot of confidence in what they are providing us. And I think the decisions that they're making in terms of their curricula are very well designed. So if there's going to be an adjustment because of COVID, um, it is an adjustment that has been taken really carefully where we are saying, well, this is a component that we could reduce. And it's not something we as a school decide. It is something that makes sure that what is possibly being adjusted has been done so that the students are still well prepared to go to university. Because ultimately, that is what we need to make sure that the, in, in this day and age, that they continue learning. I think that's been more something that we as a school have put in a lot of emphasis. What can we do to make sure that they continue to learn, that they continue to be engaged in their learning? Because we also know that universities are in an unprecedented situation. The grade is going to be one thing, but the context to each student is going to be another one. And I think that's where we see in particularly English speaking countries, you know, university applications are a complex process. It doesn't just come down to a grade. It comes down to the context as well. There is a lot of information that goes in there. Um, and I think all of that needs to be taken into, into uh, consideration. It's sort of uncharted territories for a lot of people. But I do think that even universities, they have a lot of trust in in things like international A-levels. So they know that the students are well prepared in terms of their skills. I think that's something that's uh, really important to underline as well because it is a large difference really between the the British and Irish universities. I know the Americans have their SATs and a, a different system again compared to European universities because as I understand it and I certainly know the UK system and the Irish system, you show your grades before it. There are the suggested grades that you're probably going to get or likely to get unless there's some enormous accident and of course you have the GCSEs to show an external examination assessment and you get your place at university in the UK based on if you get, let's say, AAB or whatever it happens to be for whatever course you want to do, then you can go into that university and then you're OK. Then you'll probably stay there. Whereas I believe in the European universities, there's a, a much larger pool of acceptance. But then when you get there, they start chopping you out year on year, which sounds really brutal to me. No, I, I, I would like to echo what, what Daniel just said. I think there was the whole learning process that should be considered and this learning process is considered within the European school system and then there is the final grade. And as a European school system, we have also uh, to respect all the procedures that are, let's say, imposed by university, like have predicted grades. So we also deliver those predicted grades towards university in different member states, even if we do not have those implemented as a specific uh, topic of the European schools. So we deliver those. Uh, but then there is the final grade, there is the whole learning process. Um, when it comes to the examinations in the European uh, baccalaureate cycle, I think it's also important to have a whole assessment policy 
uh, behind to have uh, internal expertise coming from the system. Uh, as a system, we are uh, taking all decisions in, 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 in after having had discussions with all the member states. That might have a disadvantage, but it has the big advantage that all the decisions are deeply and in-depth discussed with all the stakeholders to take wise decisions. So for the last uh, year, we, we had also decisions taken regarding the, the, the back examinations, which were finally cancelled, which does not mean, on the other hand, that we were not able to assess the pupils. Mm-hmm. And uh, still, even if the exams were cancelled, um, the skills were developed until the end. I think it's an effort to be done in in, in, in the kind of reporting towards university and the whole uh, communication process. And then what should also not be forgotten as a system, there should be external expertise. So constantly over the back cycle, we are uh, cooperating with universities who uh, participate in setting up the exams. We have a whole uh, body of, of experts designing the exam. So we, we need to have that internal and external expertise. We have our proper regulations in a consultation with all the member states. But on top of that, we have also to apply what's being brought by the university towards the system. And in that sense, we also have to deliver those predicted grades, which was also done in the European school system. Well, that's good to know. And and again, it's something that our listeners have wanted to know. Now, I want to finally put to the three of you with your deep uh, education yourselves and PhDs and all sorts of subjects related to education. What do you think is needed in education to prepare students, as you said, Rolf, for the 21st century? Because so many people uh, think that education it's, it's like everything. It's not moving as fast as the world around us seems to be moving. And perhaps that's something we could have always said. But technology is just exponentially changing the lives around us in our homes, cars, every single bit, how we listen to things, what we listen to. So just tell us a little bit about your views on education. And around that too, you've spoken about so many other things, of course, the, the, the mental health of a child, the extracurricular activities, how they get on with one another, diversity around around them, the communities they live in. So what do you think builds a brilliant student? Sounds like an easy question. No, it's a very very difficult one because there's no answer. Because if there was an answer, we'd all be changing uh, systems faster than we are, I believe. No, I I agree with, with what we discussed earlier that I think we... Yeah, we need to really, we need to sort of prepare students, of course, for a world that we don't really know yet what it's going to be like. Really, there's two sides to it. On the, I think the first one is is skills. They need skills. They need skills that are transferable. They need the ability to learn skills. They need an element of autonomy and learning and being able to reflect on their own learning because we can we can teach them skills, we can develop their skills. But realistically, those skills will have to continue to develop as they leave school. So the most important thing we can give students is that ability to kind of look back over your own learning, to find that motivation to continue to learn, to be able to assess your own learning and to develop a lot of these kind of cognitive skills. I think a lot of what we do is we call them higher order thinking skills. So this is uh, big words that we all know, analysing, evaluating, creating. Those are the types of skills I think that education needs to focus on these days. And to really maybe possibly oversimplify, but back in the day, I think we were down further down that kind of pyramid that we look at usually in education, where it's uh, remembering, recall, a bit of understanding, but not going much further than that. So it's that's kind of that skills development. Then, of course, alongside of that, we've touched on well-being. I think they need a lot of resilience um, and that ability to to take a risk. Um, I mentioned growth mindset at the start. It's, it's a concept that is hugely discussed, I think often possibly misunderstood as well. But I think the most important thing we can do there is to help them understand what the learning process really is, that they're learning and they're always going to be progressing in their learning and that they have that open mind. And I think that is the best we can do, because realistically speaking, I think we talk about schools, we've talked a lot about subjects today. It's quite an arbitrary way of looking at how to learn, that we go from one subject to another and we combine this subject with that subject. And maybe I think I'm possibly being a bit too idealistic here, but I think the world just now is in crisis. Uh, and I think it's it's a moment, though, where we can change. And it's also a moment where we should be questioning quite a lot of the fundamentals of education and just to see, rethink a few of the big things that are still making education what it is today. It's That's what I'm trying to ask you there. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to ask you, what's your answer to that well, maybe one? <laughs> just really think about what should we, we, we talk about reducing curricula, we talk about this and that. What is the, 
we need to question that. We need to question what is in our curricula. Is what we're teaching students actually what they need to know? Because, I mean, as much as I believe in the qualifications that we offer, I think all the systems that we've talked about today and even the ones that you talked in your previous podcast, I think there are always going to be elements in those curricula that we've got to question ourselves. Is that what students of the 21st century really need? And I guess we want our students to take risks and be bold. I think we probably need to do the exact same thing and take that step and say, no, that we don't need anymore, but this is what we need now. And my my feeling there is to go much more towards skills, making it relevant to, meaningful and relevant to real life. So it sounds idealistic and abstract, but the idea that what goes on in a classroom has to have direct relevance to what goes on in their real life. I think it's a new generation. They, they need to be able to kind of see what they're learning in a classroom, where the application of that is. It, it's difficult, isn't it? Because we're all talking about what's an EV, what's an IV, what's A-levels. And, and we're all parents here. So we all want the best for our children and we want them to do their best. And of course, we're talking about this because hopefully most of our children get the opportunity to go to university, whatever that means. <laughs> perhaps it's not even worth it because like you say, perhaps it's better to just go out in the real world and, and just uh, learn how to fail, as the entrepreneur would say again and again, which of course the education system is not set up to do currently. But that's a completely different conversation. <laughs> Let's stick with this one. I'm turning to you now, Max. Yeah. What are your idealistic thoughts for the perfect education for the future? Uh, that's a question that's our daily life. <laughs> I think that's a very challenging question where we could have a long discussion. We are in the process of, for example, revising all the scientific syllabi for the European schools. We, so we have a nine-year implementation cycle. And every time we start with that process, we are getting those questions. So what, what's essential? What should pupils know nowadays? Uh, I think pupils should understand, not only pupils, also adults. And to be able to understand, there is still a request or a, a need to have a basic knowledge. We cannot neglect that. But on top of that, we, we need, of course, we need the skills, we need the competences, we, we need also the, the attitudes. So we could call them 21st century skills, then it will be the 22nd <laughs> century skills. They must be able to analyze information, to really analyze it uh, deeply. So they are, they are really uh, confronted to a lot of information and they must be able to analyze it, to pick the right information, to have a, an understanding. It's also important to have context-based learning and career-based learning. And they must see also the purpose of learning or see any use in, 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 in the learning uh, process. And then for later on, and that's sometimes difficult also to um, to hand over in uh, at least at secondary education, they need also to be uh, resilient, they need to be flexible, they need to be able to adapt also. We also um, refer ourselves often to critical thinking, all those competences, but also essential. And that's something what's also delivered by the European schools uh, curriculum is being able to collaborate, to communicate, to, to work together. I think we li live now in a very specialized world where the knowledge is a very specialized one, but still we do not have to lose the overall, the global picture. And that's something very essential. And when we have specific topics that we deal with in the European school curriculum, like the European hours, that to have that social dimension, to have that cooperation, the idea of, of, of working together. I think that's also something very important to deliver to, to our children nowadays. So a lot of information, but people must be able to put them in the right context to analyze them, to understand, and also then uh, to adapt. And then I'm coming back <laughs> to uh, my introduction. We have to put all that in a syllabus. <laughs> and then uh, there is again the question, what content should be delivered? I think content should always be in the context of skill competences and attitudes. And those are transversal. So sometimes I have the impression that we should break up a bit the subjects we deliver at the school level, and we try so in having school that are open for like the whole school day or the, the whole day where we have the classes, we have the extracurricular activities. So we offer something uh, more than only a schooling. But sometimes I always have the impression that we should break it up and maybe not doing like biology from eight till nine in the morning and then going over to mathematics. Um, so, but that's maybe a vision for the future uh, that was already discussed in the past. So it's not an easy question, but uh, I think that's our daily business to, to have critical thinkers for, for, for the future. I think the students would quite like a, a broken up day. And I know actually of one school in the UK which changed the starting time for secondary school to about midday because it's known that teenagers biologically 
need to sleep in, <laughs> they say. Um, and they would prefer to start their day later, but it doesn't suit uh, the working life of the parents. Rolf, the final word to you. Final word, well, I feel the most important bits have already been said, both by Daniel and by Max, and I agree uh, with them. I think we need to develop critical thinkers in our schools. That involves a certain set of skills, so we want people who are good communicators, both in the mother tongue but also in other languages. I think we also need people who are mathematically and scientifically competent people. Um, uh, one additional aspect uh, that we really need to develop, and that I think we do develop as an iPad school, is digital competence. Digital people who are able to look critically at what's out there in the virtual world, in the in on the internet, and uh, therefore that also means we need people who are lifelong learners, as already mentioned, people who are learning to learn, but who are also willing to continue learning once they're out of school. Um, People who've got good social and civic skills, uh, people who are uh, self-motivated, they've got a who have got a sense of initiative and maybe entre entrepreneurship. Uh, people who are culturally aware and are able to react to different cultures and are, are sensitive towards these di different cultures as well. And in a sense, I've just rephrased all the things that uh, Daniel and Max uh, have said. So it's not uh, fundamentally different, but I think we want critical thinkers, risk takers and people who are really willing to continue learning throughout their lives. You've just described the perfect student which grows up into the perfect citizen for society. And I suppose the greatest teachers are those who can uh, harness the ones who are not quite whatever we call perfect these days and <laughs> the outsiders, the outliers. But there's great, great benefits to the outliers too. Thank you all so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I know we've gone well over time. And I know that at least uh, one, if not two of you have to dash back to teach. So if you have anything else you'd like to, to leave our listeners with as a final thought. Look us up as a school. Come and visit, even if it's just virtual. I think that's an important thing. Get a feel for the school. I think in Luxembourg we have a huge diversity of schools. So there is a school for every child in Luxembourg. Thank you all so much. And I, I wish you a, a lovely day back in the school. Thank you. Thanks.